You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Deirdre Fennell from NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled The Desperate, the Doubtful and the Sperate. John Simcott and Attempts at Irish Exchequer Reform, 1570-1575. I would like to thank John Stafford Langan for allowing me to use this lovely image of Elizabeth's 1561 fine-issue Irish shilling. It has the distinction of being the Irish coin struck in the highest fineness of silver in the 16th century. Unfortunately, this is the high point of the reformation of the Irish coinage under Elizabeth, and the question to be explored today in my talk is how far did the reformation of the Irish exchequer succeed in the 1570s? Ireland during the period 1570 to 75 was a place of flux. Lord Deputy Sidney was replaced by his brother-in-law, Sir William Fitzwilliam, in December 1571, and subsequently returned in 1575. Sir Thomas Smith and then the Earl of Essex initiated plantations in Ulster. The Earl of Clanricard was arrested and sent to Dublin by President Fitton. The Earl of Desmond was returned to Ireland, escaped in 1573, submitted in 1574. Many ideas would be suggested for the governance of Ireland by Sussex, Sydney, Tremaine and Gilbert. Yet, during this turbulent time, an attempt at the reformation of the Irish Exchequer was made. This was not the first attempt at reform of the Irish Exchequer. Indeed, during early medieval times, attempts had been made to bring Irish exchequer practice in line with the English exchequer. As well, the Irish treasurer had been identified as an accounting officer and a separate accounting function for military expenditure had been established. In later medieval times, a lot of the impetus for reform had, however, faded. Writing to Burley on the 4th of June in 1574, John Simcott, the second remembrancer of the Irish exchequer, confirmed that I have delivered the Book of Orders for the Reformation of the Exchequer to the Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam on the 26th of April. He took it in good part and liked very well thereof. Simcott continued that he caused the book to be openly read in the Queen's four courts and that he intended that the same book shall be enrolled in every court and its contents put in due execution, so far as my poor ability will serve. It would seem that the Reformation of the Irish Exchequer would parallel the Reformation of Religion the Book of Orders for the Reformation of the Irish Exchequer being enrolled in each court in Ireland, just as the Book of Common Prayer had been brought to all churches. Remembrancers were key officials in the Exchequer of the day. In today's terms, we would see them as maintaining the corporate memory of the institution. They had special responsibility for tracking debt, and the office survives to the present day, though perhaps fortunately with a more ceremonial role. Yet Simcott, though confirming he has done as Burley had wished, voices reservations. Unless some skilful English officers may be joined in authority, he stated, with these country judges, which they would not gladly suffer, I stand in no good hope of amendment of the former abuses. Already it would seem that the book had been named in Ireland as Simcott's Book of New Orders. As he confirms, 
The book is called Simcott's Book of New Orders, by which they say I have sought means to overthrow all the leases and offices in Ireland. Unsurprisingly, as the new book is being seen as the method by which leases and offices in Ireland may be overthrown, its implementation is not being positively met. Simcott notes, they would be content to recompense me with some discourtesy if lawfully they might do it. Yet reservations about the implementation of the Book of Orders for the Exchequer were also being expressed elsewhere. In a letter of May 18, sorry, 1574, Thomas Jennison, the auditor for Ireland, indicates that whilst the orders sent over by John Simcott are indeed very requisite and needful, especially for taking forfeitures with bonds of the sheriffs and farmers, Jennison is concerned that implementation of these new orders for reform will not be executed because they who ought to be the greatest executors thereof be of such great cousinage in the country. Simcott also highlights to Burley in his letter of the 4th of June earlier spoken of the need for more English officers in Ireland as he states that great alterations and changing of officers are daily looked for here and that reformation will see the removal of friendly cousinage. Cousinage and a lack of sufficient English officers to implement exchequer reformation are highlighted as the two primary reasons both Simcott and Jennison fear that reformation of the Irish exchequer will be unsuccessful and remain two consistent themes throughout all of Simcott's letters. Ardis Butterfield has explored the interplay and meanings between the words cousinage, indicating relationship, and the word cozen to cheat, and has traced this as far back as Chaucer in The Shipman's Tale and also the 13th century poem Roma de Reynard. It may be that in Tudor times both meanings were understood. Cousinage attracted also contemporary attention from many quarters. Calvin, in a sermon of November 1555, upon the fifth book of Moses called Deuteronomy, highlighted the detrimental nature of cousinage. Noting that kings shall not hoard up much gold and silver, Calvin reflects that covetousness is forbidden as the root of all mischief, and that a man given to covetousness uses all manners of outrage, violence and cruelty, and makes no conscience to devour other men's substances. And he falls to perjury, cousinage, untrustiness, treachery, poisoning, and whatsoever evil he can besides. Cousinage was also mentioned by Johannes Ferrarius Montanus, a Lutheran jurist who wrote on the good ordering of a commonwealth and the duties of magistrates. This book was Englished by William Bavand, a student of the Middle Temple in 1559 and dedicated directly to Elizabeth. In this book, we find that a magistrate is asked to enforce the law and to ensure that covetous appetite is not satisfied. The magistrate is to neither have respect to person, custom, cousinage, nor friendship. Montanus continues... Our kinsfolk, friends, benefactors, be indeed dear unto us, but we must love the common weal far above them all. Following on from this advice, as Simcott in Ireland begins the implementation of the Exchequer Reformation, he hoped optimistically, little by little, to win them and cause them to digest the Reformation well enough. It would seem that fear of reformation of leases and existing Exchequer structures is initially having a positive effect for Crown revenues. Simcott notes... For fear of loss of his office by the new orders that the clerk of the Crown's bench has certified into the Exchequer 500 or 600 marks in issues and recognizances forfeited. Rents too are being more easily collected. Simcott notes, again, for fear of forfeiture of their leases, farmers have better care to the payment of their rents. So it would seem that tenants and Crown officers are more mindful to abide by the current Crown structures to ensure that any forfeitures or non-payments do not open the door to new Reformation Exchequer policies being enacted. Simcott optimistically expects by Michaelmas term next that the Book of New Orders will see a daily increase in the Queen's decayed rents and revenues if duly executed. 
Yet, just 11 days later, Simcott's next letter to Burley is not so positive. Writing on June 74, 15th, he confirms that revenues this last Easter term are down from the usual £3,000 to not yet scarcely £1,000 paid. Simcott once more seeks officers of English birth, in particular the position of third baron, not linked in cousinage or kindred with any of them, who may have diligent eyes and ears to the Queen's Book of Orders justly executed. And noting that there are great speeches of the coming over of a Lord Chancellor and two Chief Justices for both the Queen's benches, he positively comments that he hopes Mr Gerard of Chester is being one considered for the position of Chancellor. Though Simcott does positively comment upon Lucas Dillon, Irish-born, the Chief Baron of the Exchequer and also member of the Privy Council, indicating that he is diligent and earnest for reformation thereof. Lucas Dillon had served already as the Queen's Solicitor and Attorney in Ireland. Simcott, in this same letter, also raises the need for his own promotion to Chief Remembrancer, advertising it as an officer of small countenance here, in order that he can better implement the reformations of the Exchequer. Without the title of this new position, he feels he will want of credit and authority to implement the Exchequer reforms. It seems he will require this credit and authority, as in Ireland, the Book of New Orders is being called Simcott's Book of Newfound Orders and being disregarded. Simcott also notes that the Auditor of Ireland is now taking an active part with regard to the collection of the Queen's arrearages. The Auditor is about to make out three separate book of arrearages, one of the desperate, the other of the doubtful, and the third of sparish debts, which will be answerable to the Queen's coffers. The auditor is essentially categorising the debts owed from Ireland as uncollectible, possibly collectible, and hopefully collectible. Sparish meaning hopeful. Simcott indicates that once Jenison's work is complete, that he intended to receive and then direct out processes. In a postscript, Simcott comments that many of the country people seem to be aware of Simcott's own lack of favour in seeking further financial assistance for himself. This action is causing Simcott to be less well regarded in Ireland as he discusses that the country people mutter and laugh at one who has taken such pains for the Queen's service there who is to be sent home, as he mentions, without fee, reward or increase of living. He indicates that the country people feel I have more than I have well deserved. Yet, optimistically, he continues that he doubts not of the amendment thereof against all of their wills. Yet, while Simcott has indeed brought a book of Exchequer Reformation into Ireland, he was not the author of Exchequer Reform. Earlier in England, as Burley had taken up the position as Lord Treasurer in 1572, joining Sir Walter Mildmay, who had held the position of Chancellor of the English Exchequer since 1566, Burley had commissioned a book on Exchequer practice in England, which would eventually be published as the practice of the Exchequer Court. The book itself would not be published until 1658. However, in Uthwaite's article, a note on the practice of the Exchequer Court with its several offices and officers by Sir T.F., the title page is just here, um, he indicates that Professor Conyers-Reed antedated its original composition to 1572 and has shown that the work was in fact written at the direct request of Lord Burley on his becoming Lord Treasurer in England. Sybil Jack notes that the authorship of this book could be attributed to either Thomas Fanshawe, the Queen's Remembrancer, or possibly Peter Osborne, Burley, or the Lord Treasurer's Remembrancer, both trusted advisers and key officers within the English Exchequer. Fanshawe, she notes, oversaw customs and subsidies and had some responsibility for land and the growing Exchequer equity cases. Lemberg, writing in Sir Walter Mildmay and Tudor Government, notes that Thomas Fanshawe would serve as Lord Chancellor Mildmay's principal clerk or routine administrator for more than 20 years. 
Lindbergh also notes that Burley and Mildmay drew up new and more stringent rules for the tellers of the Exchequer in England, who had indulged in some irregular practices during the last years of the previous Lord Treasurer Winchester. Five tellers, interestingly, of the English Exchequer had defaulted in their own accounts as Treasury officers in 1571, costing the Queen over £44,000. Burley and Mildmay also addressed the farming of customs and purveyance and reduced the numbers of pensions and annuities paid under Elizabeth's governance. Parliamentary subsidies themselves yielded £100,000 in 1572 and £74,000 in 1573. He notes by the end of 1572, the English Exchequer had a comfortable surplus of £140,000 and no further taxes stroke subsidies were required until 1576. It would not be surprising that Burley and Mildmay should attempt to have the Irish and English Exchequer run along more parallel lines, particularly at a time when the new Lord Deputy of Ireland, William Fitzwilliam, was related to them both and would perhaps be less likely to hinder the implementation of Exchequer reform. Lord Chancellor Mildmay and Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam were related through marriage, with Fitzwilliam's eldest son and Mildmay's daughter married since 1569. The Lord Treasurer Burley was also related through marriage to Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam, as Lady Mildred Burley, Burley's wife, was Fitzwilliam's first cousin, Mildred Cook. Meanwhile, back to Simcott. He had been appointed initially as second remembrancer of the Exchequer in Ireland on the 22nd of August 1570 under Lord Deputy Sidney, being granted a fee of 50 shillings and other fees. He's mentioned in correspondence as being in Ireland during 1571 and in July 73 is seeking payment of a debt owed to him by Captain Malbay and also seeking an increase in his own fee. By August 73, he's commended for his work by Adam Loftus, Archbishop of Dublin and Keeper of the Great Seal, following the death of Robert Reston Chalster in May 1573. Loftus, a native of Yorkshire, indicated the Queen would be better served if there were more English people in the Queen's court like Simcott. William Gerard of Chester, whom Simcott had earlier mentioned, would be appointed as Lord Chancellor in April 1576. On the 12th of September 1573, as Ambrose Dudley, Earl of Warwick, is made a privy councillor in England, Sidney too recommends John Simcott to Burley, writing in favour of the bearer, John Simcott, to be preferred to the office of Chief Remembrancer in Ireland. Sidney indicates that Simcott is an esteemed servant of my Lord of Warwick and my Lady, but chiefly for that I know him an able man for that office. I know not a fitter man to be found for that office. Though Simcott would not be appointed Chief Remembrancer in Ireland, he does return to Ireland, as I mentioned earlier, with a book of orders for the reformation of the Exchequer at this time. He's noted in the state papers in a paper entitled A Note of Such Money as Has Been Paid for Ireland Causes Since the 20th of May 1573 until the 20th of May 1574 as having received £20 in reward for his pains in coming to England and remaining there about the book of orders for the Exchequer. In October 74, Simcott is writing to Burley, pleading for an English man as Attorney General. This position is in fact granted to John Bath of County Dublin in February 1575, at the same time as the previous Attorney General, Edward Fitzsimmons of Dublin, is appointed to the position of Sergeant at Laws. Simcott also confirmed enactment of the reforms as wished for, one of which was to issue attachments against sheriffs and other accountants in Ireland. It would seem that the English wished that the new Exchequer reforms would be enacted throughout all levels of Exchequer administration. In fact, as an example of this, Simcott had called in Sir Thomas Fitzwilliam, who had been sheriff two years previously, and whom Simcott indicates never made any reckoning to yield account for the same, namely for Fitzwilliam's time as sheriff. Sir Thomas Fitzwilliam was a very influential landowner in Dublin at this time. Briefly, the Fitzwilliam family were recorded in Dublin from 1210 
Sir Thomas Fitzwilliam was one of the largest landowners in Dublin and a former sheriff. These old English Fitzwilliams held lands from their castles at Bagotrath on Bagot Street in Dublin to their castle at Marion Castle near the present St Vincent's Hospital in Dublin, all in excellent Dublin Bay frontage, and then back towards Mount Marion Church. Sir Thomas Fitzwilliam complained bitterly about Simcott's actions, requiring a baron's judgment against Simcott for having called him in like a fugitive. Yet the chief baron, Sir Lucas Dillon, supported Simcott's actions in open court, stating Simcott had issued the necessary and correct warrants and bound Sir Thomas to end his account before the end of the term. Simcott also called in Lord Baltinglass, who had never paid his rent once in seven years, other than when a writ of distringus was called against him, and Sir Lucas Dillon once more bound Baltinglass to pay his debts quickly, giving very short days for their payments. By December 1574, Simcott was initiating further land and lease reforms, whereby the Master of the Rolls shall certify into the Exchequer the originals of all leases, gifts and grants, as have passed under the Great Seal of Ireland, whereof none has been certified for eight or nine years. Simcott indicates he had convinced the careful Lord Deputy and Sir Lucas Dillon, who then well-liked and accepted his suit. Optimistically, once again, he hopes he can inform Burley shortly of some better amendments. Once again, he calls for the sending over of English officers, this time particularly judges and justices, indicating that the Queen's English subjects are not allied with friendship or cousinage, and with men of English birth in place, that they should stand and hope to taste of some drop of justice, which they have long thirsted for at their hands. Simcott also tells Burley that Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam says that Simcott can deal directly with John Goodall for the office of Chief Remembrancer. By January 1575, the difficulties within the Exchequer do not seem to have been resolved, Simcott noting that the abuses and disorders in the Queen's causes, which by ignorance, negligence and want of sufficient able offices and ministers are grown daily, Simcott reports he is both hated, hated and forsaken amongst them, yet he would rather this than to forget his duty, He confirms they would rather see me hanged than they will once open their mouths to me. He also highlights that the simplicity and weakness of John Goodall, the current chief remembrancer, has almost overthrown the Exchequer. Goodall had served initially as the chief engrosser of the Exchequer prior to his appointment as chief remembrancer in April 1573, and Simcott laments Goodall's being really no more than an auditor without sufficient legal background. Yet in contrast with this performance, Simcott highlights that his own diligence in calling Her Majesty's causes ensured that the barons had to keep court last term and therefore could call in fine for payments of the Queen's revenues in Ireland. By the 13th of January 1575, Simcott describes an Irish exchequer which is in total disarray. The records, he says, are so slenderly looked into, made so common to the Irish views and searches that a number of them are embezzled, their tenures blotted, cut out or erased, that of late days after certain their deceases, neither tenures, rents or services of many of their lands are to be found. And he describes it all to Her Majesty's no small hindrance. Simcott himself seeks commission from Burley to authorise both he and George Lodge to deal for the customs in Dublin and Drogheda. George Lodge had already been granted the customs in Dublin in 1565-66 and had also been appointed in 1566 to stop illegal exports of goods out of Ireland. Lodge was allowed to retain one quarter of the forfeitures that he obtained and had also the right to purvey wines and other imported goods for the deputy's household. And in 1569, Lodge also obtained the wine custom of Dublin. The customs of Drogheda had been granted to John Goodall, the chief remembrancer earlier mentioned, in July 1574, 
and the customs of both Dublin and Drogheda would eventually be granted to Hugh Mostyn, gentleman of Dublin, in August 1575. Irish merchants claimed that their charters allowed them to be free of all manner of customs tariffs, paying but two pence Irish for their entries gross if they transport over £1,300 worth of wares in one voyage. Simcott indicates that the searcher of Chester has winked at these slights and gained more than the Queen's custom as a result, confirming that he only required a £500 increase in tariff revenue that could be had, and more importantly, that he and Lodge would crave none other yearly fee than to be considered by way of Queen's award. By the 10th of March 1575, Simcott once more returns to his own lack of fees earned as second remembrancer, being under £8 sterling, as he describes, and his being at the charge of two clerks indicating that he is now seen as but a common drudge amongst them, neither considered or preferred, whereof these country lawyers like well, and wish me and others so to continue, only to weary and send us home again, that their faults may remain as they had long done. Yet, in the selfsame letter, he highlights that Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam had held court sessions in Kildare, Meath and Westmeath, and is due to hold them shortly in Mullingar and that Fitzwilliam had caused a number of notorious traitors, rebels and their adherents to be executed. Simcott seems to relish this hostile military action by the Lord Deputy, and he advocates the Lord Deputy should have begun this order three years ago. In terms of generating revenue, in the Fiance it's noticed on June 1575 that Simcott is included on a commission to inquire what lands and houses of right belong to the Castle of Dublin in any shire or town in Ireland. William Beckwith had informed that certain parcels of land and buildings formerly parcel of the castle had of late been wrongfully concealed. Others on the commission included John Chaloner, Secretary of Ireland, Jack Wingfield, Master of the Ordnance, Lancelot Ornott, Lancelot Alford, formerly Chief Remembrancer of Ireland, and now Surveyor General, and John Betts, Gentleman. Further attempts to garner revenue are made when Simcott, with the written support of Fitzwilliam, issues 292 writs, as he confirms to Burley on the 24th of July, 1575, that the judge, justice, sergeant and attorney are most negligent in their payments. They think that they must not be touched with any process, and as they allege, they have not been so cruelly dealt with all before my time, alleging that they ought to have more superiority than meaner persons. I've shown them that they ought to have less, because their well-doing should be examples to all the rest. All the time, Simcott is pleading that the Queen's debtors are not being made to pay what they owe to her because of the inadequacies of those who serve her. And to add a further salt to his wound, he had been prevented by the cousinage in Ireland from obtaining the office of Chief Remembrancer. Simcott states in a letter that I offered Goodall a reasonable sum for it, but by the secret dealings and counsellings of the Irish judge, sergeant, attorney and other lawyers who would rather that any other than I should have it, the said offer is stayed and they assist Goodall with their unskillful clerks. As Sydney arrives into Ireland as Lord Deputy on the 18th of September 1575, by fiant of the very same date, John Simcott's position as second remembrancer of the Exchequer has been awarded to Roland Cowick, Clerk of the Privy Council, to hold during pleasure with the usual fees as John Simcott had. Simcott, or sorry, Cowick would later work as registrar for Adam Loftus and would hold lands at Bowdenstown in Kildare. Loftus seized Cowick's records in 15, 1587 on Cowick's death for... Loftus's own security, fearing what would become public knowledge after Cowick had died. And then shortly afterwards, in 1575, by another fiend, the position of chief remembrancer is bestowed on Roger Mainwaring to hold as John Goodall had held it. Roger Mainwaring was a native of Cheshire who appeared in Ireland with Edward Fitton and who had married Fitton's daughter in 1571. Edward Fitton was president of Connacht and would become vice-treasurer and treasurer at war in Ireland in 1573. 
However, Simcott's attempts at exchequer reform in Ireland were not the end of the matter. In June 76, a commission was granted to several individuals within Ireland, including the new chief remembrancer, to recover the debts due to the Queen and her three predecessors. In 1577, Chancellor Mildmay wrote a memorandum on finances and in an attachment noted that Ireland had cost Her Majesty since the beginning of her reign £500,000, whereas in times past, he stated, it had defrayed itself and yielded a yearly revenue over to the Exchequer. In 1578, Mildmay, along with the two English Exchequer Remembrancers, Thomas Fanshawe and Peter Osborne, mentioned earlier, were commissioned through the Acts of the Privy Council to consider how the administration of Irish revenues could be rendered more efficient. Though it should be noted that Simcott's reform of 1574, whereby the Master of the Rolls, as he quoted, shall certify into the Exchequer the originals of all leases, gifts and grants, did have repercussions. It led in 1578 to the breaking of locks and the seizing of records belonging to the sequestered Masters of the Rolls, Nicholas White of Munster descent, by, among others, the new Chief Remembrancer Richard Maywaring. It be necessary to break into the office of the Master of the Rolls in Dublin Castle in order to have access to the records. Exchequer reform continued to prove difficult, as you can see from this adversarial, I suppose, exchequer cloth enactment. And as we see in the final slide, proceedings could often become quite heated. But as we say, that's for another presentation. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.